0: It's a big lesson of the Theranos scandal with Silicon Valley dabbling more and more in healthcare. You hear a lot of people, a lot of successful people in Silicon Valley, and you hear VCs in Silicon Valley say, the healthcare system in the US is broken. This is the next big industry that we have to disrupt. And increasingly, you see people in Silicon Valley going after healthcare and going into med tech and i think this is a wake up call that there no scandal is a reminder that fine bring your new ideas and your money to the problems of healthcare but you got to remember it's not the same world as software and that the stakes are much higher welcome to
1: the sidcast the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story who they are and how they got to be that way my name is sid finkelstein a professor at dartmouth college and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning Discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode number 147 in a rather auspicious week, given our guest on this podcast episode. John Carreyrou. Who's John Carreyrou? You know the name. He wrote the blockbuster book, Bad Blood, which is the inside story of what happened to Theranos, the blood testing company, and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, the second in command, Sonny Balwani, who was the longtime romantic partner of the CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. The book has won many awards. John Carreyrou was a writer for the Wall Street Journal. Actually, he broke the original story about Theranos. And it turns out that this week, on November 15th, really just coming up, and depending on when you're listening to this, may have just happened or even today, Sonny Balwani, the COO of Theranos and the longtime romantic partner to Elizabeth Holmes, will be sentenced for the convictions that he was found guilty on by a jury. And Elizabeth Holmes herself will be sentenced on November 18th. So, also this week. Now, I say all that, but there have been delays in this court case before, and who knows what other last minute delays might come up to postpone the sentencing further, but that's the schedule as it stands. And John Carrier was up in Vermont as the keynote uh, speaker. Actually, it was me interviewing him and having and leading a conversation at the Dartmouth Device Development Symposium, which is a really blue chip symposium of doctors, venture capitalists, clinicians, healthcare executives, regulators that focus on the device industry, the medical device industry. And obviously they were very interested in Theranos and what happened to them. John Carreyrou, he was the first to break the scandal. You remember that? And the various lies of the Stanford dropout that founded the company, Elizabeth Holmes. Since the book came out, There's been an HBO documentary, which I know that John John Carreyrou cooperated with. There's been a series on Hulu that got a lot of press, which apparently has caused a bit of contention between the Carreyrou camp and Hulu, Hulu with respect to rights. There's been various podcasts. ABC had a big podcast. There's a lot. And I think there's even a movie that's in the works that might appear in Apple in the next couple of years. So it's a story that really caught the public eye. And why is that? Well, here's this 19-year-old, extremely smart young woman, Elizabeth Holmes, who drops out of Stanford and starts this biomedical company called Theranos. And at one time, that company was valued at $9 billion. And Elizabeth Holmes, being the equity owner of 50% of the company, her equity valuation on paper was $4.5 billion. This was a cover story in Fortune magazine, actually in every business magazine you can imagine. It was really Silicon Valley wanting to see a female billionaire startup entrepreneur after all the surgery Brins and going back Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Bezos or who knows whom to have the equivalent being a woman. And Elizabeth Holmes apparently patterned a lot of her actions, her behaviors, even her look after Steve Jobs, the legendary founder of Apple. Uh, you know with the black turtleneck and all the rest and so there's just so many angles to the story and the book itself is great i actually teach my new mba students about theranos in their second week in their mba program the book bad blood was named financial times and mckinsey best business book of the year it's over three million copies already around the world which is just tremendous and you love to see it because it's a great book it's great reporting and what we do in the podcast is we spend the first part really getting into the journalistic side of it. You know, how did he find out? How did John Carrier find out about Theranos? What was the tip or the tips? How did he go about trying to prove the case that there really was something rotten going on? What did they do wrong? What is Elizabeth Holmes like, really like? Why did she do what she did? What happened to that company? And what was happening with Sonny Balwani? And what about the characters in this story? David Boies, the legendary attorney and founder of Boies Schiller, who's seen his reputation take a huge hit as a result of this story and the tactics that he employed in defending Elizabeth Holmes. A lot of blue chip names in this story. And Elizabeth Holmes at the center of it, just a fascinating entrepreneur. And the person that probably knows more about this story than anyone else in the world is John Carrier, who broke the story for the Wall Street Journal and then wrote this book, Bad Blood, and spent years talking about this, researching this, writing the book, and continues to be involved in reporting on the Theranos story. So we may see the sentencing of both Sonny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes later this week, but you don't have to wait for any of that. Podcast is ready, and you could step right in and sit down with me and John as we talk about what really happened at Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes and how he broke the story. John Cairo on The Sitcast. Welcome to another edition of the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. My guest today is John Carrier. Hi, John. Hi. I'm glad to be able to get you on the podcast. Of course, I've read Bad Blood. Many, many of my students and others have read Bad Blood. And you're actually here in Woodstock, Vermont, as part of the 3D Conference, the Dartmouth Device Development Symposium. And just in a short time, not long after our podcast, you and I are going to do a fireside and a lot of audience Q&A. But for all those people that are not at the 3D conference. They get to listen to us now. I'm interested just to get us started in the journalistic side of the story before we get into a lot more about Elizabeth Holmes, Sonny Balwani, Theranos, and all the details of what happened. How long have you been a journalist, say at the journal in particular, before this story broke?
0: So I started looking into Theranos in early 2015. So I would have been at the journal about 16 years by then. 16 years? Yeah. I'd been a journalist about 20 years. Just curious if you ever had another story before this that rivaled
1: for drama and impact.
0: I've had some fun stories along the way, but probably not any one story that rivaled this story in terms of the twists and the various dimensions and the drama. No, I can't say that this takes the cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people would believe that. So you were truly an investigative
1: journalist through this episode. Was that your beat? Or were you specializing in healthcare devices or what? And this came across and then you started digging into it.
0: I had always had an affinity for investigative journalism, but I hadn't technically specialized investigative journalism in the sense that I hadn't become part of the journal's investigative team until about 2010, so about five years prior. And where the investigative reporting part and the healthcare and medicine part come together is before joining the investigative reporting team, I had been in the Healthcare and Science Bureau and in fact, had even at the end become the bureau chief, the editor of that bureau. And so my work in the investigative group after I left the Health and Science Bureau at the journal tended to revolve around uh, medicine and healthcare because that's where I had my expertise. That's where I had my sources. That's where I was already well situated and,
1: and sourced. How did you discover the first stages of your understanding of Theranos? You heard of the company, maybe even covered it before that in the early days. How did it come to you? How did you learn about it, really?
0: I actually had not covered it or come across it. The company and she, Elizabeth Holmes, first came on my radar in late 2014, December 2014. At that point, she'd become a celebrity in Silicon Valley and beyond, but she hadn't appeared on my radar yet. And I came across her in a profile in the New Yorker magazine by Ken Oletta. Mm -hmm. At the time, I often read the New Yorker during my commute back to Brooklyn. And I opened the magazine to this story that night and was interested, but immediately skeptical because the main conceit of this profile seemed to be that this young woman who dropped out of Stanford without any medical or scientific training to speak of had gone gone on to revolutionize a corner of medicine, namely blood diagnostics. And I'd done a lot of reporting about healthcare and medicine by then and enough to know that that's not usually how things happen. Usually people who make advances in medical fields are trained and then do decades of research before they yeah. add value. So I was skeptical. I noticed that there were a few skeptical passages in the piece in particular about the company's secrecy, about the fact that it didn't publish in peer reviewed publications which was another thing that is not customary in medicine as you know I guess there was the kernel of a doubt and of suspicion that was planted when I read the story. But I have to say that, you know, when the subway arrived at my stop and the subway doors open, I put the magazine in my bag and I forgot about the story (laughs) and probably wouldn't have done anything with it with my hunch if it hadn't been for the fact that a few weeks later, I got a call from a source pathologist who operated a pathology practice in the Midwest. Name was Adam Clapper, and he'd read the very same New Yorker's story was even more skeptical than I was. He knew a lot more about blood testing than I did. And he moonlighted as the writer of this obscure blog, pathology blog, B-L-A-W-G, is how he spelled it. And upon reading the New Yorker piece, had immediately written a skeptical item on his blog, declaring himself a skeptic. And within 24 hours of doing that, he had been contacted by a guy who told him, you know, you're on to something, you need to keep digging. Mm. And that guy was a fellow by the name of Richard Fuse, who had done battle in court with Elizabeth for several years over a patent. And over the course of this patent litigation, had become convinced that she was a fraud and her whole company was a scam. Hughes then put Clapper in touch with a few other people that he was in touch with who shared his skepticism. And Clapper was intrigued, but being a full-time pathologist, not having any journalism experience, he decided that he would pass the tip on to an experienced journalist. And so he thought of me, he called me up. And when he passed on the tip, it immediately obviously resonated because of that initial surge of skepticism that I'd had when I read the New Yorker piece. And so I was all ears at that point. Do you get lots of tips out of the blue like this? Mm
1: -hmm. Like how unusual is this?
0: No, I mean, even back then I got tips on a regular basis and my rule was always to at least look into them a little bit. Sometimes it was just a few minutes. Sometimes it was a day or two days. Sometimes it was several weeks, but to always look into the initial tip and see if there was anything to it. And obviously nine out of 10 don't pan out. But this was the one that did pan out. You started learning more about Theranos, about Elizabeth Holmes. How did you get to the
1: next step when you had the so-called whistleblowers contacting you? And maybe even before that, there were a few steps as well.
0: So after talking to Clapper, hearing him out, I talked to Richard Fuse. I talked to his son. They had both been involved in this litigation with Holmes. I pretty much immediately determined that they couldn't be sources for me because they obviously had a big axe to grind. They had been litigation opponents of this person and this company. I did listen to what they had to say. I called someone you may know, Phyllis Gardner, who was, still is a Stanford Medical School professor who was in contact with Fuse and who shared his skepticism about the company as well as Rochelle Gibbons, the widow of a deceased Theranos scientist. You know, those three fuse and Phyllis Gardner and Rochelle Gibbons, they formed kind of this sewing circle of there are no skeptics. And they were talking among themselves, but no one was really listening to them. And so I talked to all three of them. They had interesting things to say. Rochelle Gibbons in particular had some insights from her husband had worked there based on what he had told her a few times before he died. And also the circumstances of his suicide were clearly both sad and interesting because clearly the company's toxic culture is what had brought him to become clinically depressed and to commit suicide. Taking all that, it wasn't enough because these three people had theories and they had some information, but it was mostly informed skepticism or secondhand, thirdhand information. I needed primary sources. And so if I was going to get anywhere with this, I needed to make contact with people who had worked at the company or before still worked at the company, people who knew what was going on inside the company. I put out feelers. That's when I started calling up current and ex-employees one person that I eventually managed to reach was the outgoing laboratory director. And I can now name him because he revealed our sourcing relationship during the criminal trial last fall. His name is Adam Rosendorf. And when I made contact with him, he was less than two months removed from having worked at Theranos. And he was clearly super stressed out. The company was coming after him, trying to muzzle him and became apparent during our first phone call that I wasn't going to get anything out of him if I didn't grant him confidentiality. And so I did. And then he began unburdening himself. And that was the beginning of a trove of reporting that ended up taking me months to sort of unravel. But that was the big break when I talked to Adam and he started revealing to me what he knew on confidential terms.
1: Is he the one, Adam, that was in the news, apparently going back to Elizabeth Holmes' home to talk to? It? That's who it is.
0: Yes, So he's a complex character. He is a complex character. He's a tortured character. I would call him a tortured character. But yes, we could talk about that if you want, that the recent twist of him going to see Holmes after she was convicted. Yeah, I just alluded to it. So maybe
1: you could just share what happened there and then we'll go back to the storyline.
0: So in August, I think it was August 8th to be exact, he found himself in Palo Alto. Apparently, he went by the old Theranos headquarters building and it was no longer there and it had been raised, and there was a new building there. He then went to the Walgreens that Theranos had put its first blood draw site in and Palo Alto, that was also not there anymore, had been replaced by another business. And so he was doing a tour of these memories. And I guess he thought it would be a good idea to go and knock on Elizabeth Holmes' door. And as he later said in a court hearing this week, his thinking was to see if he could both clear the air with her by talking to her, he could forgive her. But that proved to be a very bad idea because you can imagine that she and her lawyers were going to pounce on anything that he said. And he apparently did say a few thanks to her partner, Billy Evans, who answered the door, which her defense team then used to file a motion for a new trial and for an evidentiary hearing. So long story short, the evidentiary hearing was granted by the judge to get to the bottom of what the hell Rosendorf had been thinking going to her house and whether or not he had said some compromising things to Billy Evans or not. That evidentiary hearing took place on Monday. Yeah, the long and short of it is that Rosendorf firmly stood by his trial testimony and didn't recant in any way, didn't allege any prosecutorial misconduct. And so I think what's going to happen in the next week or two, the judge is going to rule against the motion for a new trial. And we are finally headed toward the sentencing that all this will have achieved is it will have delayed her sentencing by month. Her sentencing hearing is now set for November 18th. So just
1: to clarify, when you said this past Monday, that would be October 17th, because people could be listening to this even a year from now. That's right. October 17th. And we're now recording this on October 21st. That's right. So the schedule is November 18th will be the actual sentencing date. Yes. Unless something else emerges, which wouldn't shock (laughs) anybody, I suppose. Okay. So how long was it from when you got this guy that wrote that blog to when you wrote your first big story in the journal?
0: It was a good eight or nine months. I think it was about eight months, which is a long time. And I would argue now in hindsight that it took too long. I think in my view, we were ready to publish earlier. We were ready to publish. The the story ended up getting published in mid-October of 2015. I think we should have been able to publish in early July. And because we waited so long and we gave Holmes and the company and her lawyers so much time to respond, that's when things got really hairy. We can get into that if you want. But yeah, it took about eight months. That's
1: probably going to be surprising to a lot of people. It's surprising to me. It's a long time from when you first hear about something that's got some potential legs. It, within a short period of time, you knew there was a story here. And then it took a long, long time. Were you ever concerned that this guy who wrote the blog sent it to, you know, Ken Aleta and two or three others, and you can get scooped on this after doing all that work? That was one concern for
0: sure. Another concern was whether the Wall Street Journal was going to back me up and actually go through with this story and publish it. It involved a lot of stress in the spring and summer, yeah. and early fall of 2015. Rupert Murdoch was one of the investors
1: with Elizabeth, with Theranos, and he owns the journal. What role did that play in any of these delays?
0: Yeah, I didn't know at the time at all that he was an investor. It, it turned out that he invested $125 million in Theranos, right as literally right as I began looking into the company in early 2015. He, at that point, would have had no idea that I was beginning to look into the company because the only person who knew was my editor, the investigative editor at the journal. And I certainly had no idea that he was investing in the company then. I didn't end up finding out for sure that he was an investor until a year, an entire year after my first story was published. The first rumor that I heard that he might be involved in some way or other was shortly before that first story was published, but I was never able to nail it down. I was never able to get any confirmation that he was involved as an investor. And it was only a year later, the a very well placed and knowledgeable source that I found out that he was an investor and that he invested as much as he had. At that point I had just gone on book leave to write Bad Blood and so when I learned this, this uh, piece of information, I thought, oh, my God, this is crazy. And then my second reaction was, this is just going to make the book even better. <laughs> yeah. All right. What was the holdup? What
1: were they saying to you? What were they doing? They were telling you your story was wrong, no doubt. I mean, what did they say? How did they try to rebut your critique?
0: All of the eight months weren't consumed and going back and forth with them, I would say the first four months were amassing a critical mass of information and reporting to feel like this wasn't, in fact, the story. It started out with this tip from Claffer, a pathology blogger, and then I had my first breakthrough, like I said, with Rosendorf, the lab director, but then he was speaking to me on Deep Background, not for attribution. I couldn't use his name. There's no way the journal was going to publish a story based on one anonymous source, however good that source was. So I had a lot more work to do. And that work took another three, four months. I had to line up other confidential sources, other company insiders to corroborate what Rosendorf was telling me. I flew to Phoenix and got my blood tested at a Theranos kiosk at a Walgreens in downtown Phoenix. And I also spent a week out there talking to doctors and patients who used the product and got doctors and patients on the record to tell me about the erroneous blood tests that they'd received from the company. I also flew out to the Bay Area, Palo Alto, to meet some of my confidential sources to do more reporting. So it wasn't until late April, May of 2015, three, four months in, that I began approaching the company and letting them know that I was doing a story and could they answer these questions. At that point, they tried to stonewall me. They gave me the silent treatment for about a month or a month and a half. But then I think it dawned on them that I wasn't going away. And so that's when they called the lawyers, which would be now we're in June of 2015. And their lawyer was David Boyce. Their outside counsel was David Boyce. And so he came to our offices with some of his colleagues and with Heather King, who had been a longtime Boyce Schiller attorney who had gone and become the general counsel of us. And so they came with a delegation of like five or six to our offices. And we had this long sort of showdown in a conference room at the Wall Street Journal. Lasted five hours. Five hours. Five hours. Yeah.
1: What was going on during this time? They were trying to convince you not to do the story. Is that pretty
0: much what? Basically, yeah. They were trying to threaten us, intimidate us. I had sent some questions ahead of time. They had requested that I send questions ahead of time. So after the initial sort of barrage of intimidation and threats became clear, I was there with my editor, Mike Saknolfi, the journal's investigative editor, as well as Jay Conti, a lawyer for the journal. And I would say that after the first 40 or 45 minutes, when it became clear that we weren't be easily intimidated, they then deigned to start getting into my questions and it was one question after another the response was this is getting into trade secrets we can't Mm -hmm. respond to this unless you sign an NDA and of course we weren't going to sign any NDAs which would have handcuffed us So we went around in circles. It's a scene that I describe actually in a lot of detail in a chapter of the book. I think it's chapter 21 of Bad Blood. It was a pretty surreal scene. You know, if anything, at the end of this crazy meeting, their attempt to call me off the story really backfired because their behavior was so suspicious that I felt more strongly than ever that I was onto a good story.
1: Did David Boyce Himself threaten you or the journal, I guess, with lawsuits is how they would do it. Did he actually do that?
0: It wasn't an explicit threat during the meeting, it was an implicit one. And then at one point during the meeting, he said, You know, you'll be receiving a letter from me putting my objections on the record in coming days. And sure enough, within, I don't know, it was like 48 or 72 hours of that long meeting, we got the first letter threatening litigation. And then we got several more, including one, I think, 23 page one. In July, something like 22 of the 23 pages were about attacking my integrity as a reporter and my methods. It was a clear attempt to try to get the journal to disown me, which didn't work. That big meeting at the journal's offices marked what I would call the beginning of a scorched earth counterattack by the company which took the form of multiple letters threatening litigation. It took the form of Sonny Balwani, Elizabeth Holmes's number two at the company and her secret boyfriend flying out to Phoenix and showing up at offices of the doctors I'd interviewed and threatening them and trying to get them to recant and sign prepared statements, recanting what they told me took the form of. Did they do that, by the way? Yeah, two of the docs did. But luckily, they were two docs that I hadn't planned on using so that the damage was minimal. This campaign, this counterattack, took the form also of hiring private investigators to tail some of my confidential sources, which is something that came out definitively during the trial. How did they know who your confidential sources were? They figured out one of the things I learned during the trial. One of the pieces of evidence that came out at trial was this trove of texts between Elizabeth and Sonny. There were thousands of texts that prosecutors got their hands on between Sonny and Elizabeth, spanning I think from 2011 to 2016. The texts show that within a couple weeks. If that of my going to the company and letting them know that I'm working on a story and beginning to ask questions, that Sonny immediately, in one of the text to Elizabeth fingers, my three main sources, who were Adam Rosendorf, the lab director, Tyler Schultz, the grandson of the former secretary of state, uh, George Schultz, who was a board member of Theranos, and another young former Theranos employee named Erica Chun. I mean, they knew that those three employees had left with objections and raising doubts, and their suspicions immediately gravitated toward them. They sicked private eyes on Tyler and Erica. What else happened? Elizabeth went to Murdoch on the scenes several times and tried to get him to kill the story. It got pretty crazy. Well, obviously, he didn't kill the story. Do you know what he
1: said? Did your boss who may have had direct interaction, maybe you did as well, with Murdoch, get a sense of what he was thinking, what he was saying, what he was doing?
0: I'm told he listened to what she had to say and told her that he trusted the journal's editors to handle the matter properly. One thing you have to remember is this is 2015. This is, what, three years after the phone hacking scandal that had caused him a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache in the U.K.? And so presumably the phone hacking scandal and all the ways in which that had boomeranged back in his face were still fresh in his mind. I can imagine that that would have informed how he behaved in this manner. Back to
1: Erica Chung and maybe Ryan as well. It was probably in your book, as you know, there are movies and Hulu and HBO documentary, all sorts of other things based on your reporting. And Erica says how terrified she was. She's a young woman. And she's being followed. There's a car across the street or something like this. I'm not sure if I'm remembering all of those details perfectly. I mean, you must have felt bad for her because she had to be pretty brave, actually, for a young woman to say what she was saying against David Boys and Company.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, she experienced some of the most stress of anyone. She and Tyler, I remember I was in my car in, it would have been July late June or early July of 2015. I was in my car because of street cleaning rules. in Brooklyn, you have to move your car once a week. Alternate side of the street parking. (laughs) Alternate side parking. So I was in my car, double parked, waiting for the street cleaner to go by. And suddenly my phone rings and I answer it. And it's Erica absolutely panicked. Mm. This was a Monday morning. Turned out the previous Friday evening, there had been a guy stalking her in the parking lot of her new employer in Silicon Valley, and when she had come out around six or seven in the evening with a colleague, she knew that there was a guy out there stalking her. She'd asked a colleague to come out with her so that it would be safer. And this guy stepped out of the black SUV and made a beeline to her. With an envelope, in the envelope was a letter, a threatening letter from David Boyce, telling her that they had reason to suspect that she was speaking to the Journal and that she was breaking her nondisclosure agreements, and that basically ordering her to show up at I think Theranos offices and meet with Boy Schiller attorneys, or she would be sued. The thing that freaked her out the most, beside the threatening letter, was that the address on the letter. It was addressed to her. The address was the home of a colleague with whom she'd only been staying for like a week. She had planned on moving to Asia and she had decided to not renew the lease on her apartment. So she had a temporary housing arrangement with a colleague that was only going to last just a few weeks. And She was a week into it, and the only way they could have known that that was her address was to have tailed her. And so that was when it occurred to her that she was being followed. So yeah, when I got that call from her, I had to calm her down, and it was really stressful. I had to hold her hand and make sure you know she didn't do anything rash. And you know, I reminded her that she was now an ex employee. If there now she didn't have to do what the company's lawyers ordered her to do, and she ended up laying low and ignoring the boy's letter. Thank God she was important to my story. A lot of pressure.
1: Okay. Let's make sure we know what it is Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos did wrong and why she was indicted, why she was found guilty and soon to be sentenced. What was it in just everyday terms that she did and the company did wrong?
0: Well, I mean, what she was convicted for in January was essentially investor fraud. She was convicted on four counts of investor fraud. One was a conspiracy count. And the other had to do with three investors that the jury found she had defrauded, essentially that she lied about the capabilities of the company and the capabilities of the device and the financial state of the company. She was acquitted on patient counts. The government had also charged that she had lied to patients and that she had frauded uninsured patients out of their money by misrepresenting the technology. She was acquitted on those counts. Her ex-boyfriend and former number two executive, Sunny Balwani, and his separate trial and subsequently was convicted on all counts, not just the investor counts, but also on the patient counts. To come back to what did Holmes and what did Theranos do wrong, on the record, they were convicted or she was convicted of defrauding investors. To me, that isn't the worst part of this scandal. What I consider to be the worst part is the fact that in fall of 2013, she went live with a product, a medical product that didn't work, She had a machine called the Edison that was very limited in its capabilities, could only do a handful of blood tests and it didn't perform them accurately. And then to hide that from the public and from patients and doctors, because she had claimed in magazines and interviews and to investors behind closed doors that her technology could do hundreds of blood tests off a tiny pinprick of blood from a finger to hide that she and her employees had modified third-party machines, namely machines made by Siemens, the German company, blood analyzing machines. And they had hacked those machines to try to adapt them to small sample testing. And that had created a whole other batch of problems because in order for the Siemens machines to accommodate the smaller samples, they had to dilute the samples in saline solution, which created problems with accuracy. So to me, her biggest crime is that she knowingly commercialized a medical product that she knew was deficient, that she knew was flawed, that she knew did not work. And she put patients in harm's way. She endangered the public health. Unfortunately, the charges that prosecutors came up with didn't really address that. And I don't know if there is a way in criminal law to address that. What she did, I think, is akin to medical battery, which I know is a civil charge. I don't know if you can charge that criminally.
1: I was interrupting you a couple minutes, because that was the question I was going to ask you. Like, why was she not? Or was she just verifying what you just said, that she was not indicted for creating a product that some patients got false positives or false negatives are very, very, very serious things that could cause huge trauma and the wrong medical treatment, which is really, really terrible. But that's not what she was even indicted on, which is kind of amazing.
0: In the end, Theranos had to void nearly one million blood test results. And we know for a fact that tens of thousands of patients were affected and had their test reports voided or corrected. So the harm wasn't hypothetical. There were real people who received very bad blood test results. And as you know, and she herself used to say at the height of her fame, most doctors, medical decisions are based on blood test results. So she knowingly brought
1: to market a healthcare product, health diagnostic product that didn't work and that she knew it didn't work. And the question that has to come up is why would she do that? Is she an evil person? Is she deluded? Does she care about money more than anything else? Why would somebody do a thing like that?
0: Yeah, I think to understand it, you have to understand the culture of Silicon Valley. This is a place where people have been taking it until they make it for a long time. That's kind of the ethos of the valley. One of Holmes's mentors and early investors was Larry Ellison from Oracle. And Larry Ellison in the early days of Oracle, he was exhibit A for faking it until you make it. He called the first version of his database software, version two, to make <laughs> it seem like they had gone through an initial iteration of it but debugged. In fact, The version two, which was really version one, was absolutely riddled with bugs to the point that early clients of Oracle like the CIA would have to call Allison's programmers and they would go over the bugs with his programmers and debug the software together and then in ensuing years you know he would announce new versions of the product that had features that they hadn't even begun working on and so he was a fantastic salesman who wasn't always telling the truth in fact he was often exaggerating but look where he is now he is one of the world's richest people probably one of the most successful people in the annals of American business and so it didn't hurt him Oracle eventually ironed out its products and became a mature and successful company and i think Elizabeth Holmes is someone who was well aware of this history of this lore. She knew that people like Ellison and like Jobs had cut corners, you know, early in their careers, and she felt entitled to do the same. She felt like this is something that's par for the course in Silicon Valley. You can kind of cut corners and you can exaggerate it. You can hype in the interest of eventually having enough runway so that you get there. And so I think her thinking was in going live with this product that didn't work and fall of 2013 was we're going to get there. Eventually might take us a couple more years. In the meantime, I'm going to launch because I need to, my backup is against the wall. I'm out of funding. So I need to launch in order to be able to go to investors and tell them, look, 10 years in, I do have a product that works. So give me more money, which is exactly what she did. And they did give her more money to the tune of 700 million more dollars. And then she thought, you know, we're going to get there. It might take us two, three more years. Once we get there, no one will be the wiser. And I'll have reached the pantheon of these Silicon Valley tech moguls who become billionaires. I think if she hadn't been operating in the realm of medicine, she conceivably would have gotten away with it. But because she operated in healthcare, where the stakes are so high, it all fell apart.
1: So that's the difference as you see it. But when you describe the Larry Ellison did, he was not, as far as I know, indicted for any of these things. Maybe Elizabeth Holmes said and probably was encouraged to do the same type of thing because it didn't hurt Larry. And that's just one example, as you know, there's many, many examples in Silicon Valley, which has a logic to it in its own in its own way. But you're also pointing out that well, this is healthcare. It's not software, and therefore people's lives are at risk. All of which makes sense. but then there wasn't really an indictment about people's lives. That's the crazy
0: part. But I think the part of this story that outraged everyone, including, I believe, prosecutors, although I've never talked to prosecutors, so I can't know exactly what they were thinking, but I have to think that this was a factor, that the fact that she essentially experimented on patients was a factor and that it made the Department of Justice more interested in this case than it might otherwise have been. And even if they didn't end up indicting her on, you know, medical battery charges. I do think the the patient part of this, the public health part of this played a big role in the federal investigation and the indictment and the trial.
1: What you're saying, of course, makes sense, but it does imply a certain discretion, significant discretion prosecutors have. Of course, they have it on whom they're going to indict. And I think of Travis Kalanick at Uber or Adam Newman from WeWork. I don't know that they do fake it till you make it. Sure seems that way from my reading, but they've not been indicted. You know what I'm saying? It's There's a discretion part to this while we would say because she did put people at risk, danger, it was appropriate. But still, I'm not sure I like the discretion part so much. It's either right or wrong. Shouldn't we indict other Silicon Valley founders who are also completely misrepresenting what they're doing?
0: You could make that argument, certainly. I personally, I do think that the sins of Travis Kalanick and Adam Newman of WeWork, while some of their actions were egregious, I don't think it rises up to an Elizabeth Holmes. And probably, yes, the difference is that they didn't endanger the public health, and that is probably the crucial difference. It's a big lesson of the Theranos scandal with Silicon Valley dabbling more and more in healthcare. You hear a lot of people, a lot of successful people in Silicon Valley, and you hear VCs in Silicon Valley say. The healthcare system in the US is broken. This is the next big industry that we have to disrupt. And increasingly, you see people in Silicon Valley going after healthcare and going into med tech. And I think this is a wake up call that there's no scandal, is a reminder that, fine, bring your new ideas and your money to the problems of healthcare. But you got to remember it's not the same world as software and that the stakes are much higher. If you uh, don't bear that in mind, then what happened to Elizabeth Holmes could happen to you. Have you continued to follow the
1: field of blood diagnostics? I understand there are other startups trying to do something analogous to what Theranos was trying to do. I don't know that anyone's been successful yet. Have you continued to follow that industry?
0: I haven't followed closely since I wrote the book, but my understanding was this was true as recently as two, three years ago, that no one had yet come up with the solution. No one had yet cracked the puzzle, the puzzle being how do you do hundreds of blood tests off? A drop of blood pricked from a finger. Why has no one cracked this puzzle yet? Two reasons. One is that the type of sample you get when you prick a finger, in medical terms, as you know, it's called capillary blood. And that type of sample is polluted by tissue and cells, whereas blood that you take from a vein in the arm is not. That's one difficulty. And it makes certain tests, like potassium, very hard, if not impossible, to test for accurately off capillary blood. The other bigger problem is the size of the sample. There are four main classes of blood tests, and they all require different methods, different instruments. And when you do a couple of, say, general chemistry blood tests off a tiny sample of blood, and then you try to move to another class of blood tests, you've exhausted your sample. And you need more volume in order to shift to the other techniques and instruments that are required for those other classes of blood tests. Right. To my knowledge, no one has solved that yet. Did Theranos get approval for one blood test? of any type. I'm
1: trying to recall if that was the case.
0: They got FDA approval for one finger stick test, which was a herpes test.
1: And so that one met the
0: standard that the FDA had set. Yeah, apparently so. And when that news came out in, I think it was mid-July or early July of 2015, Theranos tried to argue to me and make the point that this validated Mm -hmm. their entire technological platform. But that was not the case. The herpes test, like tests for infectious diseases, is a yes or no test. And so it requires less sensitivity than quantitative test. It's qualitative test. And so just because you've managed to make your product work with the herpes test doesn't mean it works for a whole range of other tests that require a lot more accuracy. One of the really
1: interesting parts of the Theranos story is that board of directors. Very senior Political figures, you mentioned already, former Secretary of State George Shultz, Henry Kissinger. There were ex-military generals on there. So these are very high prestige people, but they know nothing, probably nothing about business, but let alone, I don't think any of those people were MDs. We wouldn't expect them to know a lot about blood diagnostic testing. Was this about just having a high prestige board that people say, wow, look at this. This implies some degree of credibility. Are these friends of Elizabeth in some way in her circle? I wonder how she got, for example, Murdoch to invest, Betsy DeVos to invest, was another very wealthy individual who was in, I think, Donald Trump's cabinet. And then you have Schultz, you have Kissinger, and I can't remember now all the military people.
0: How did that happen and why? It's what you call affinity fraud. You surround yourself with people who have a lot of credibility prestigious names and you borrow their credibility, that is very much what took place. In this case, Elizabeth was able to do that because she met uh, George Schultz. The first guy she met was George Schultz in 2011. She met him through a Stanford professor and he immediately fell under her spell. George passed away about a year and a half ago, but when he was still alive, he was someone who had a lot of enthusiasm for science. He would tell his grandson Tyler, that he believed that science would solve all the world's great problems from climate change to pandemics. And so when she came to him with her supposed breakthrough, he was immediately enthusiastic and soon they were spending 30 hours a week together eating either at his place on the Stanford campus at his house or he would come and visit her at the Theranos headquarters. And through George, she was able to meet a lot of these other guys, namely Henry Kissinger, who's a longtime friend of George's. And also he was a fellow at the Hoover Institution, the think tank on the Stanford campus. Mm -hmm. She met people like Sam Nunn and Mattis and Admiral Roughhead. She assembled this great board. And yes, I think the point of that board was to give her added credibility and also to give her an entree with investors. And certainly she was able to meet new investors through people like Schultz and Kissinger. It's basically what the SEC defines on its website as affinity fraud. They actually
1: call it affinity fraud, using kind of an inner circle of high prestige people to imply something that's not true. Is that pretty much what that is?
0: Yeah. Affinity fraud is surrounding yourself with credible people and borrowing from their credibility and then using them for introductions. Did you interview some of those board members? I spoke to one board member in particular, but it was on deep background. So I can't say who it was. Sure. Well, what I'm curious about is did they ever think they did something
1: wrong or that they were fooled or that they were aiding and abetting something that was illegal? Did they ever feel remorse
0: even? I think they felt remorse in the sense that after a certain point, when enough things had come out, they realized that they shouldn't have gotten involved with her or with the company. One thing to know is that the board did not know what was going on inside the company and in the lab. The board thought that all the blood tests were being done on finger stick and that all the blood tests were being done on Theranos' Edison device. They had no idea that Siemens machines had been hacked and were being used for the majority of the blood tests. They had no idea that blood samples were being diluted. They didn't know about any of these shenanigans. They were kept in the dark by Sonny and Elizabeth. And so you can blame them for negligence, for falling asleep at the wheel, which in some cases, it wasn't just metaphorically that they fell asleep at the wheel. There were instances in board meetings where Kissinger and Schultz would Mm -hmm. fall sleep. I mean, I fall asleep. Would literally fall asleep during the board meetings. The reason I know this is for his 2014 profile of Elizabeth Holmes, Ken Noletta interviewed Schultz and he shared subsequently shared the not Schultz. Well, he did interview Schultz as well, but he interviewed Kissinger too. And he shared the Kissinger interview tape with me and Kissinger remarks that he and Schultz would fall asleep during some of the board meetings.
1: What role do you think gender played in any way here? For example, on the way up, Who in Silicon Valley and among the media didn't like the idea of a female Silicon Valley billionaire? I got to believe that's a good story for a lot of press. And I remember thinking about that Fortune magazine cover story that a lot of people remarked on. And then, of course, on the way down, it seems to have happened pretty quickly. So in what way do you think gender played a role here?
0: I think gender played a huge role in this story. I think Holmes used her gender to charm people without suggesting anything untoward. She was a young woman, late 20s, early 30s, when she met guys like Schultz and started spending a ton of time with them. And there's no doubt that Schultz was flattered by all this time that Elizabeth Holmes was spending with him, that he was really charmed by her. But then the other way in which gender played a role is, yes, there was a great appetite for a woman to finally succeed on the scale that all these men had in Silicon Valley. And so people were cheerleading and not just women, not just women and young girls. And there were women and young girls who were writing alms letters at the height of her fame in 2014 and 15. But a lot of men were cheering for her as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wanted to believe in this. It was a feel good story. And then I would say did did gender play a role on the way down? Was Elizabeth Holmes, as she claimed, treated more harshly because she was a woman? Her gender is at the heart of the story. So yes, I think her gender is also part of the epic sort of downfall. She's a fascinating character for people. She's the reason that people can't get enough of this story. And I'd say it doesn't just have to do with her gender. It has to do a lot with her psychology. I think people try to understand what she was thinking and how she could have done the things she did. People are fascinated with those questions. But yes, Gender is absolutely at the heart of the story.
1: Why do you think she's really like the Turtlenecks a turtleneck Steve Jobs that got a lot of publicity. Her non-blinking eyes got a lot of publicity. She created a brand and a style that was mesmerizing for the press and for many observers and maybe for the board members, as you're saying as well. I mean, what do you think about her, really, at this stage of the game?
0: She's a chameleon. She understood what she needed to do to get people's attention. You know, she was operating in a completely male-dominated world in Silicon Valley. So she understood that she needed to behave more like these men were behaving. And so that's when she started adopting the all black out the black slacks and the black turtleneck and deepening her voice. Her voice is naturally deep. But if you look at her numerous public appearances on YouTube, you can find moments when she very clearly and deliberately deepens her voice. And when she sort of leans, there are several instances of this, but one Fortune conference in particular where she's answering questions in her black attire and she leans forward and puts her elbows on her knees and kind of mansplains in her deep voice. And so in her defense, she was doing this because she felt that she needed to do it to get people's attention. But what's my overall thought of her? I think her defining characteristic is that she's a chameleon. And the latest shape in which she has shifted is that of the young mother. If you look at her when she shows up in court these days, she looks nothing like Elizabeth Holmes of 2015. Long gone is the mascara and obviously the black turtlenecks. Now she wears these very neutral outfits. She carries a diaper bag. She has a young son. And she now is playing the part of the innocent, young mother. And she's trying to use this new image to get sympathy from the jury. And she's now trying to get sympathy from the judge before her sentencing. What type of sentence do you think she's going to end up getting? Well, I mean, if you go by strictly by a federal, federal sentencing guidelines for what she's been convicted of, the verdict could easily reach 10 or 15 years. She's facing a maximum of 20. I don't think it's going to be that heavy a sentence because I think the judge will pay attention to the fact that she's a woman, that she's got a toddler son, she's pregnant with a second baby she's a first-time offender, and she'll probably have a lot of people write in nice letters in her favor. I think the judge will take all that into account. If I had to guess, if I were a betting man, I'd say five to seven years. John Carrier, thank you for taking us
1: behind the scenes in what happened, both for you as the journalist and the person that really broke the story, and then a lot of insight into Elizabeth Holmes and what she was doing and why she was doing it. It's a story that, as you said, people can't get enough of this and it's going to continue. I teach a case study to my MBA students in their second week in school on Theranos, and it always creates a very heated classroom on many, many dimensions. And I say there's an entire MBA curriculum in the Theranos story. You've got almost every aspect of what I and some of my colleagues teach, finance, venture capital, ethics, leadership, strategy, marketing, and it goes on and on. Thank you for all the work that you did and thank you for taking the time talking to me and all of our listeners on The
0: Sidcast. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to The
1: Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode the sitcast is growing we have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share this idea i had four years ago for real conversations with real people informal and informative well it's taking off and that is thanks to you i welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you if you have any questions suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.